0: Hello friends, it's Outfit Bunga Bunga. The date is Friday the 18th of September. My name is Alex Hochili in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare who are in the UK. And I'm the producer of this episode, which is on unemployment. Uh, What you're going to hear first is our interview with Liz Pancotti, Policy Advisor at Employ America, who will tell us about the current picture of unemployment, focusing on the US. Then we'll be talking to Aaron Beninab, a researcher on the history of global unemployment, to talk more specifically about his new book, Automation and the Future of Work, which is out from Verso Books next month. Uh, and really, we've been thinking about doing an episode on unemployment for quite a while, and uh, the current moment really pushed yeah, we us.
1: Have. Yeah, so I guess, uh, as listeners will obviously know, we've had a massive demobilization of the workforce across the world, but I think perhaps particularly American listeners will uh, will understand this so yeah it's probably overdue the past few months to be talking about employment unemployment the future of work things like this
2: yeah i mean i guess we could have spoken about it um on any kind of um you know at any particular point um but there is no way of avoiding it as an issue now as you, as um as you say george given just the sheer kind of unprecedented character of how um, unprecedented,
1: Claxon. You can't say unprecedented. You have to think of a synonym.
2: Of how um, the labour force is essentially, and I think what's often missed. I mean, you know, uh, this point about unemployment, and maybe we'll come onto it in the discussion with the guests. But it's often seen as just a question of the economy of um, people earning income or producing things for businesses, businesses making money, people kind of having jobs and money and by, you know, being able to live. Um, And I think it runs much deeper. I mean, it's ultimately society itself um, that needs to function. And it's the way in which we uh, relate to each other. I mean, you know, in a very kind of practical and immediate sense, but also in a broader sense, if we aren't just kind of to remain um, isolated, in our little bubbles, in our little COVID bubbles, society needs to, it needs labor to perpetuate itself. And so I suppose that's the thing I would stress, I guess, is that the question of unemployment of work is a question that is much larger than just um, income and profits, uh, wages, labor and capital.
0: Yeah, indeed. And that's why there's quite a lot of discussion about post-work, whatever that might mean, um, in the way uh, in that people are trying to find their way towards a society which perhaps doesn't orient itself around work as a central component anymore. Um, and, you know, it's something that we've discussed on this podcast before. You might guys might want to check out episode 88 or 90 um, about uh, universal basic income, which we did with Anton Yeager and Amber Lee Frost, respectively. Um, and I also just want to shout out before we go any further, some other episodes you might want to check out on these themes. Um, we did a whole bunch of episodes on economic planning and post-capitalist futures. So we did some reading clubs, uh, episodes 119 on Morozov's proposals for digital socialism, episode 125 on Jasper Burns' planning and anarchy, uh, and a uh, normal episode, episode number 59, with Lee Phillips and Mikhail Rosvorsky on democratic planning. Um, so those are all ones that w- are worth checking out. Uh, and also, one final announcement before we actually get started. Uh, you should join us at the end of the month for a reading club in which we'll reevaluate Michal Mikhail Kalecki's famous... The Political Consequences of Full Employment, uh, in which we'll also refer to what we hear here, what we learn uh, over the course of uh, these next two interviews. Okay, so here's me talking to Liz Pancotti, and after that, you're going to hear the three of us interviewing Aaron Beninav. All right, so I'm here with Liz Pancotti, who's a policy advisor at Employee America, which is a think tank and strategy organization which overall pushes for tighter labor markets, stronger worker power, and higher wages. Um, it works, uh, Liz tells me, both on Fed policy as well as as well as on fiscal policy. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, we're uh, delighted to be having this conversation about uh, what is actually a pretty grim subject, about unemployment, um, and specifically talk about the current state of things, about unemployment in the U.S., the effects of the pandemic and the lockdown, and maybe a little bit towards the end about the prospects for the future. Um, So just checking the data today um, at a very sort of top line level. And the Federal Reserve's forecast is that U.S. output will contract by 3.7% this year, and unemployment will uh, finish at 7.6%, which is uh, a more optimistic prediction than its previous estimate of something like 9%. Um, And of course, all of this, from my understanding, is with uh, the assumption that there'll be future fiscal stimulus already built into those predictions. Um, So it's pretty serious. So maybe first of all, Liz, if you could tell us where are we now, and maybe at least compare that to where we were when that famous New York Times front page came out. Um, For listeners, I'm sure you'll recall this, it was in early May, they used the full length of the the front page to fit a graph showing uh, the spike in those claiming unemployment insurance. Um, so where where are we now? Where were we uh, a couple of months ago? And how does that compare to where we were um, at the beginning of the year, let's say?
3: Yeah, so just to give a kind of high-level overview of, of what data we have. Uh, so in terms of real-time data in the U.S., there are kind of two data sources for labor market indicators. One of those is a weekly data source that is the unemployment insurance claims. So uh, when you're unemployed, in it, when you lose your job of no fault of your own in the U.S., you can claim unemployment insurance benefits similar to uh, unemployment compensation systems in other countries that have different rules. But uh, in the US, we keep track of those claims at the state level. And so as of this morning, it releases every morning on Thursday, there were um, an additional, you know, 1.4, 1.5 million claims. So we're still having extremely high levels of claims every week. Uh, for unemployment insurance, suggesting that people are continuing to come off of payrolls or to cycle in and out of being on payrolls as business closure orders um, are reinstated. Um, people are, are certainly still losing their jobs. It's, uh, many economists have suggested that the job loss is happening now as opposed to those happening when that you know, New York Times piece was, was published in, in March and April when they kind of showed the graph of the extreme increase. in at that point, we were having five to six million per week. And um, it certainly has slowed, but I would prefer if we're going to flatline, I would prefer it being a level below 1.5 million per week. Um, And so we're we're still seeing very elevated uh, levels of job losses. And some of those people claiming unemployment are people who have been unemployed for weeks or even months and are just now getting through systems that have uh, high levels of backlog and, and lots of hoops to jump through to file. And some of those people are people who you know, were laid off from their jobs last week. So we're still seeing an uh, elevated level of job separation, certainly higher than we saw in the Great Recession or in um, previous times of economic downturn. Uh, I, I, it is lower than it was at the beginning of the pandemic, but certainly not at a level uh, even close to normal. Um, Conversely, we have a monthly data source similar to to most countries where the unemployment rate is published each month and that's based on both a household survey where individual workers are asked what is your employment status, how many hours a week are you working, what is your income, what's your education level, Uh, kind of basic questions about the uh, household level employment. And then firms are asked, are you hiring more people, do you have more job openings, are you able to hire people, are you laying people off, are you cutting hours. Are you cutting wages, et cetera? And so that um, in the employment situation summary report, as it's called, was was published um, last week, and that came out, I guess, two weeks ago now. And that came out and said that the unemployment rate was about eight to nine percent. And so uh, that means that 14 million workers are unemployed, uh, and a hundred million workers are not in the, or, or I guess a hundred million people in the U S are not in the labor force. Um, that's an, a slight increase from where we were a year ago. So in, in 2019, we were 95 uh, million workers and now we're at 99. So, uh, we are seeing some people either drop out of the labor force, or you can imagine recent, you know, College or high school graduates aren't entering the labor force uh, given the current situation. So we are seeing some labor force participation labor force participation declines, and also many people unable to find work who would who would like to be working.
0: Yeah, and I want to get into that question in just a little bit. Um, I wondered if just before that, if you could maybe paint us a little bit uh, another picture at a maybe. Maybe slightly higher degree of granularity in terms of the regional picture, um, Are certain places suffering more than others, and maybe a sectoral picture as well. Have layoffs come from? Has it all been in services? Has it? You know, where where's this? Uh, where's the unemployment coming from? Or is it pretty much across the board?
3: Yeah, I would say regionally, we're not necessarily seeing. You know, the south doesn't necessarily look completely different from the north compared to the west coast. Uh, I think everywhere is. Pretty bad. I would say the states that reopened early. So we saw some states in the south or less densely populated states in the Midwest open their businesses earlier after you know closure orders uh, during the lockdown in the in the first few months of the pandemic. So in March and April, places started to open in late May and June. Whereas some northern states and California, for example, on, on the West Coast, they tended to open later. And it, at first, we saw that un- that employment bounced back a bit in those places, but I would say we're not seeing a lot of uh, very clear stark trends or anything in employment across whether states opened early or late or in certain regions of the u s now sectorally we we saw that the initial wave of layoffs, those you know six million claims per week that we were seeing during those last two weeks of March and first few weeks of April, those were certainly concentrated in the service sector because those were the businesses that were shut down. you, you know they were restaurant workers and um various different sectors that were shut down as a, you know, for public health reasons. And so we were yeah. seeing many of those happen, especially in low wage jobs, or the US categorized them as non essential. But we were seeing increases and in, you know, people were getting hired at uh, in, in the medical field, for example, you know, hospitals were trying to staff up uh, lots of temporary like nurses and things like that. And then you were also seeing a huge increase in grocery store workers or in, you know, these kind of independent contractor positions where people deliver groceries and whatnot, Postmates or um, Instacart. We, you know, I would say there were large increases there in terms of the service sector. Um, in terms of where we are now, I'd say that there are still many businesses that are closed, uh, either due to capacity constraints from from public health orders. You know, restaurants can open with patio dining only or with 25% capacity. So you need fewer waiters, and um, I would, you know, janitor services are up in some places because some places require more cleaning, but. You know, because many people in the U.S. are still working from home, those like big commercial janitorial service contracts are probably on a pause because no one's working from their desk. So you don't need, you know, a hundred janitors to to clean a high-rise uh, office building in 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 a downtown area. And so we're still seeing a lot of unemployment in the service sector, but we're starting to see layoffs uh, kind of move over to other sectors and to higher-wage jobs. So anecdotally, right. my friends who are in you know marketing or legal services or kind of these i would say jobs where you can work from home that are not so dependent on consumer demand um but are you know big commercial contracts and things we're starting to see layoffs in those service in in those sectors and i think that's largely driven by um business contractors. and you know there's if, for example, my, my friend who's a lawyer for a real estate firm, no one right now is, uh, he does commercial real estate law and like businesses right now aren't trying to lease new properties to open new businesses. And so his firm has seen a downturn. And so I think we'll see layoffs. They have started to move into into those other sectors, but we'll start to see layoffs too, especially at higher wage levels. Um And I think those will be, whereas the service sector ones might have been temporary if restaurants, you know, were able to kind of weather the storm for two or three months and close down and then reopen. We'll see one, many of those not reopen. Um, We'll see some of those jobs start Mm. to come back. But I think in those other sectors, not all of those jobs will rebound as quickly. And that will depend a lot on the economic situation over the next six to 12 months, but also the level of fiscal support that uh, those businesses are able to get from Congress.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that seems to suggest that there might be a change in the structure of the labor force itself, that it's not just a a dip, which will return to the status quo ante. Um, Just before we talk a bit more about that, what is the situation with the emergency benefit in the US? Um, It was 600 before, then there was 300. Now it's apparently running out. So especially for uh, those listeners who aren't in the US, which is about at least half of our listeners, um, what's that look like?
3: Yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll give my like elevator spiel of the way that unemployment insurance works and, and how the federal programs interacted. So each state, uh, it's a very decentralized system, and each state administers unemployment benefits that the average benefit, I think, is about $300 to $400 a week, and it's typically about 30% of your uh, former wages. So if you made $1,000 a week, you might get $350 or so in unemployment compensation. Um that's a big cut for many workers. You know, if you assume that kind of discretionary spending and saving is, you know, maybe 30% of your income and 60% is like necessary expenses like food and housing. um, You're not even able to kind of make those expenses with just a normal level of unemployment benefits. And they really were designed at, you know, some countries have different systems, but here at least unemployment insurance was really designed to be the thing that gets you between two jobs, like for. You know, three or four weeks for you to kind of search for a job, find a job, uh, and quickly start one. It was not intended to be a long-term system that keeps people afloat for many months of long jobless spells. And so in the past, uh, during high economic downturn, uh, like in the Great Recession, Congress has passed federal unemployment programs where it either adds monetary benefits to those weeks or it extends the duration of those benefits. So in most states, you get 26 weeks worth of benefits. Uh, And so in the past, there have been federal programs to add additional weeks to that. And in the Great Recession, the maximum number of weeks a worker could claim was 99. And in the Great Recession, they added about $25 onto your unemployment compensation check per week. Conversely, the CARES Act, which was the big fiscal stimulus package passed at the end of March, added $600 per week on top of unemployment compensation with the intention to get kind of the median worker up to 100% of their income replaced. So if you had, you know, if the median worker earns about $950 per week, you have about $350 per week in state unemployment compensation. The federal government added $600 per week to those checks to get kind of the average worker, the kind of middle-income worker, up to their previous wages. Because One, we wanted people to stay home. We, in fact, did not want people reporting to work for public health concerns, but we also wanted people able to make their rent payments, make their mortgage payments, pay their credit card payments, all of those things. So it really was intended to be kind of a very temporary thing that got people through business closure orders rather than keeping them afloat through a long jobless spell. So when that was passed, those benefits expired the week of July 26th. So for, you know, from the end of March to the end of July, workers were receiving large unemployment um, compensation checks. And then the benefits expired. So when Congress passed that, they put an end date on it, and uh, they did not come together to agree on another deal to extend that. Now, a few weeks later, the Trump administration found a a pot of money called the Disaster Relief Fund, which is, uh, it's a part of the FEMA funding, which is uh, the organization that, handles when, you know, hurricanes happen or when there are large typically natural disasters but in this case they determined that covid was a, an emergency and as a result they could use the money for covid relief and they used that money to pay unemployed workers $300 per week that not only took several weeks to implement in fact i think in 20 states payments have not yet been made to workers but it only the, the amount of money available especially given the number of unemployment claimants there are, just didn't last very long. That brought us to September, the week of September 6th, and those benefits are now done. So some people haven't received their kind of $1,800 payments, either over, you know, $300 per week or one lump sum payment. So eventually that money will get out the door. But for workers, the way that unemployment insurance works is you have to log on to a system and recertify each week that you are still unemployed and then a, a check is cut if you meet the eligibility requirements. And yeah. so they kind of they call it weeks claimed. And the, the people claiming, for example, this week, they won't get the money for this week, even though the check might be deposited this week.
0: I mean, it's a very difficult situation, obviously. Um, and I'm actually struck by, I mean, and I'm I'm talking looking across kind of Europe. Um, also in North America, that given that the, the chasm, the economic chasm that we're staring into, um, that the whole world really is staring into, there's remarkably little discussion, I mean, in relative terms about the economy as a whole, and specifically unemployment, uh, relief for those left jobless, the questions of potential future job growth or otherwise. So, I mean, that's my impression. What is your take on where the discussion is now in the US? I mean, I, and I mean, more popularity than kind of beyond policy circles like is is this being discussed do you think enough even
3: i say it's being it's certainly being discussed i think that like the cliff of these benefits you know the the big cliff of the 600 dollars benefits at the end of july and now um journalists are starting to cover and policy people are starting to kind of talk about this 300 cliff it's certainly being talked about and when you have 30 million workers claiming these benefits. It's hard to ignore. This is certainly not a small-scale program or something that's, you know, affecting few Americans. But I would say that so it's in the spotlight a lot. Like there's certainly a a lot of conversation about it. But I would say that because our jobs numbers have improved, uh, quote unquote, over the last few months. So in June the unemployment rate was 11, and in July it was 10, and now it's 8.5. And so I think because we've had in conservatives' eyes, kind of rosy job reports, and we're starting to see, you know, an upward trend in labor force participation and in in the employment rate, Um, there has been, it it seems like a less emergent situation that people, you know, are starting to return to work. There are jobs available for people that want them in their opinion. And so as a result, it's not so important to To top off, you know, to extend these topped off benefits. And conversely, if we look at other economic indicators like spending or, um, you know, foreclosure rates or bankruptcy rates or mortgage defaults and all those things, so far there, there hasn't been kind of a crash in those indicators to suggest that the you know, unemployment compensation being so low, only replacing 30% of people's income, is really causing a lot of stress in in the in other financial systems. And so, I think until we see the evidence of that, which I and many other economists have argued, we will certainly start to to see evictions rise, to see um, you know credit card credit card defaults and all of those things. I think maybe then it will be emergent. But for right now, because of the you know, you can kind of cherry pick the data points that you'd like to pick. And and there are some positive ones, like I'm certainly happy that the unemployment rate has started to decrease. But I would argue that 8.5 is by no means a good level of un- unemployment to have, you know, especially right. when we were at, you know, three before the crisis. And so I, I think for some people, they've kind of for a lot of policymakers, they've kind of said, well, you know, the $600 was a disincentive to work because a lot of people were earning more than their, you know, previous wages. And as a result, they weren't going to work and employers were having such a hard time finding workers. And that I, you know, no one has found actual evidence of that. There've been many studies that have shown that in fact, it, it did not disincentivize work because uh, in the US, your, you know, healthcare coverage is tied to your employment status. And so there's kind of all these other fringe benefits, you know, paid leave, um, all of those things, workers obviously wanted the stability and the benefits of having a job. And so even if you were making a hundred dollars more a week on unemployment, there was still an an incentive to take a job. And so I think because of this like story of this disincentive effect of these benefits and the fact that we're not seeing the hardships of these people appear in other data sets, it, It's certainly a conversation that's being had a lot. It's in the news every single day, but it's not something that seems to be um, an emergency thing for many people in in the federal government.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and I guess there hasn't really been any um, popular revolt around these questions at all. And indeed, um, you know, maybe after the 2008 crisis, you know, a lot less than might have been expected given uh, the gravity of the crisis. And I mean, I think that maybe takes us to discussing the question of the longer term picture of unemployment in the US, Um, maybe since 2000 or since 2008, depending on, I guess, where we want to start from. Um, I mean, I remember observing from Europe, you know, especially the kind of post-2008 period um, that people were discussing, oh, well, look, the US is still a job creation machine, you know, unlike what was going on in Europe, um, where you had huge increases in unemployment, and especially in youth unemployment, which has remained extremely stubborn, um, especially in places like Italy or, or, or Spain or Greece, um, that the U.S. seemed to amazingly, after this extremely deep crisis, actually get back to a fa- what seemed to be like a fairly healthy job market. Um, do you agree with that? I mean, is that, is that a kind of um, depiction that you would agree with? Because I mean, my understanding as well is that that might also disguise a lot of things that are going on. So uh, just the labor force participation rates um, were kind of falling, basically, that it peaked kind of around, I don't know, you can correct me on this, around 2000, um, but fell very steeply, obviously, with the crisis recovered somewhat, but it's still far below, even leaving the COVID uh, crisis aside, uh, the participation rate is much lower than it was pre-2008 crisis.
3: Yeah. So if we look at the employment population ratio, that sort of peaked in, a, in about 07. So about a, a year, year and a half before the height of the unemployment rate. And then to recover back to, I mean, we have not recovered back to that level, but to recover back to that level of unemployment, Um, That actually took about seven years to get back to that for, you know, from the height in 2010 of about 10% unemployment to get back down to 4.5. We didn't hit that rate until January of 2017. So seven years after the the height at 10%. Mm. so it did take a while to recover, though we were on, I would say, a more uh, continuous downward trend, whereas we saw in other countries things sort of moved around a bit. There wasn't, I wouldn't say there was like a second spike in many places, but there were places where they kind of flatlined for a while and recovery didn't seem to continuously happen. That said, I would say that in the US, perhaps distinctively, though I'm sure this happened in other places recovery seemed to happen both faster and more continuously for largely white workers and for college-educated workers. And we have seen large disparities among racial groups and among education levels that I suspect will happen perhaps even to a greater degree after this crisis. I think we'll also see a large gender gap in recovery after this crisis that we saw to some extent after the Great Recession, but given our situation of schools have not, um, I guess they've reopened. In some places, but the, the majority of American students uh, in kindergarten through 12, you know, in, in primary and in secondary school, they're learning online at home while some workers struggle to, you know, take Zoom calls with their kids in the background or they're held out of the labor market entirely because they can't return to work for a lack of childcare. And so I think because the US focused more on reopening businesses like bars and restaurants and small businesses, as opposed to reopening schools, which would have fostered, you know, a a bigger return to work, that decision, I think, will impact largely women and and caretakers more than Mm -hmm. other people. So and given where the, the sectors where the layoffs happen, you know, in the service sector where uh, fewer workers have college degrees and the, the sector, the workers of that sector are largely people of color. Um, we'll see a slower rebound for those people. And I, a lot of people have been highlighting um, the kind of stickiness of the Black unemployment rate and how it, it took much longer to recover after the Great Recession. In fact, I think it there were some statistics that showed that it had kind of just started to get back to those pre-Great Recession levels um, within months of uh, the pandemic happening, and and now the uh, black unemployment rate is double what the white unemployment rate is, and so. I think we'll see a lot of disparities happen in the recovery that have happened in other recessions, certainly, and that happen generally in the American economy. But this pandemic particularly is going to hit workers of color and female workers and uh, workers who lack college education, I think, uh, even harder. And so it will be interesting Mm -hmm. to see how those gaps um, fare across countries as opposed to just the US. But we know inequality is uh, not a uniquely American problem, but certainly a significant problem here. And so even if we think about the rate of recovery from the Great Recession. Uh, And I think some people would say it was fast, or at least that it was, you know, continuous. Um, That was for some workers and and not all workers.
0: Right. I mean, I I think there's also sort of a parallel discussion, which is a much wider one, um, and one which maybe was happening even before the COVID crisis. But which is that the kind of the middle class, um, maybe both small business owners um, as well as, and maybe more specifically kind of professional managerial class um, might be undergoing what the industrial working class underwent in the 1980s, uh, which is to say uh, a redundancy effectively and downward mobility um, of a whole section of the population. Um, Is that something that you're, you can foresee maybe under the impact of the COVID crisis?
3: I think particularly for small business owners, it's going to be extremely hard to, if you're able to kind of weather the storm, if you were able to over the past six months and for the next six to 12 months as as we're in kind of vaccine development and, and uh, we are still under heavy, I would say, business suppression due to public health orders. Um, I think demand for small business goods and services is certainly still down, and the fiscal support for small businesses in the U.S. has been much lower than that of uh, than than it has been in other countries. And so, I think particularly for small business owners, we will see that sort of effect happen either because of the same reasons that kind of happened uh, to industrial workers in the 1980s, or or even in movements before that, or for for other reasons. But yeah, I think in terms of the managerial sector. It, that, I think, is an open question, and I don't know that I have the expertise to answer it, but certainly in the small business sector, it, probably more so in America than in, in other countries, we'll see um, many closures and a lot of financial effects from from that because of the crisis. And I think particular, like, the kind of had there just been a normal recession, uh, as opposed to this kind of pandemic-induced one where, you know, there were kind of differential supply and demand effects than in other, pand- than in other recessions uh, because it's a pandemic maybe that would not have happened, but I think uh, this crisis will be unique for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seemed that like there was possibly a recession on the way before the pandemic, but obviously the pandemic uh, exaggerated its impact.
3: Sure, yeah, I would say over. that maybe it catalyzed, <laughs> yeah, I would say maybe it catalyzed a recession, but we were certainly seeing signs of um, of economic downturn in various indicators prior to this. So uh, we, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess you're getting this sort of proletarianization question as well as increasing precaritization, which was obviously a, a longer term, um, feature and which has been obviously much discussed over the past decade or so. Um, I mean, I just read a couple of pieces today, one in the financial times, one in Wired about the increase in digital piecework or crowd work, um, which is to say, uh, increase in working from home, but not the kind of relatively privileged working from home that professionals do, but, uh, but a much more precarious uh, sort of employment uh, engagement in things like Amazon's Mechanical Turk, you know, the kind of little broken up little bits of work um, that are sh- uh, shoveled out to individual, you know, service providers in, in quotation marks. Um, have you seen kind of, do you, have you come across this? Um, is it something that you think is like a, a growing phenomenon? Because um, it does seem quite uh, concerning and something which would maybe, serve to mask kind of top line unemployment figures, but which is actually a very sort of precarious existence.
3: Yeah, I think sort of the, so in the U.S., we typically refer to this largely as the gig economy. I would say that's a very particular part of the gig economy of being able to do things at home, such as on platforms like Upwork or um, MTurk or something like that where... Yeah,
0: I mean, I I mentioned that specifically as a sort of, maybe not a contrast, but a a specific instance of the gig work discussion because precisely because of the pandemic effect of basically keeping people at home, um, that then this sort of, uh, this other aspect of the gig economy particularly takes off in in somewhere like the U.S.
3: Yeah, it's quite interesting. So if you would imagine, you could imagine that, like, perhaps someone who was previously an Uber driver, uh, who was, you know, still a gig worker, but working... Uh, you know, providing a service outside the home is now forced to, uh, be either because of lack of demand or because of public health concerns, you know, work from home. And I would say there there are few opportunities for those workers, or or in previous times there were few, Though we have seen. I, I, so uh, the chief economist of Upwork, Adam, is, is on Twitter and is quite active and has said, you know, there's been an uptick in, in interest. Um, I'm going to butcher Adam's last name, so I'm going to refrain from saying it. Um, but <laughs> Adam has kind of said there's been an uptick in interest in freelancing work on Online, teleworking, etc., and and I think MTurk, Amazon came out with something to say that like users on MTurk were up. It, the income from those sources, though, I would imagine. I think in the kind of little research that I've done, the the wage levels for those things are much lower. Maybe not on Upwork, but certainly on MTurk. It's hard to make. Uh, you know, enough of a living to pay your housing and food and whatnot on, you know, 10 cent surveys. Um, And so, and it's very different from driving from Uber, which you could conceivably work as a full-time job. And so I think, I, I'm not sure how much it will take off. Um, I'm sure there's interest in it right now. I don't know that there will be sustained interest, especially as like you're able to return to previous gigs. But certainly if you're an unemployed worker who was working a typical employment job, you know, you were a server at a restaurant or you worked, uh, you were an administrative assistant in an office or something. And now you're forced, you know, you're unable to work from home. And so you've been laid off and you're looking for some source of income either because you're unable to access unemployment compensation or because you need to fill the gap between your unemployment compensation and your previous wages. Those people I'm sure will be interested in those opportunities, but I can't see given the wage levels of those or the ones that I know about at least, I'm not sure that there'll be a sustained level of uh, a sustained opportunity for those people. But I think the gig economy at large, you know, looking outside of just this like small slice of it, I'm, I would suspect that freelancing uh, and gig work, uh, the, the share of people participating in those as a source of employment will likely increase either as a second source of income or as their primary employment. Now, that's a little bit tricky in the United States because our labor laws are written such that they're an entirely different class of employees, which changes not only their tax status, but also their protections under labor laws for things like minimum wage or access to health insurance or paid leave, as well as their ability to organize into a labor union and whatnot. And there have been a lot of calls recently, particularly around Uber and Lyft because of some state-level laws in California about misclassification of these workers as independent contractors. There's been a lot of movement in the U.S. to reclassify those workers because they say you know you can't be an independent contractor which is an incentive for it, firms have an incentive to classify those workers as such because they pay fewer taxes um, on them and don't have to provide them as many labor protections and so there's been a, a, a large movement in the u.s to reclassify those workers and there's been some movement in this in, in congress with what's called the pro act which would institute a national test for classification of if someone is a independent contractor or not. Um, I The Biden administration, or the, sorry, the Biden campaign has expressed interest in uh, working to pass that legislation should he win the election in two months. And so I think we'll see a lot of movement around um, the classification of those workers as well as the legal protection of those workers should they, you know, still be classified as independent contractors. And given the, the share of the labor market that independent contractors are likely to make up as a result of this pandemic, um, and also just in, you know, in pre-COVID shifts in the labor market, I think we'll see a lot of movement in the US in that particular space Mm -hmm. as gig work seems to um, increase in its kind of market share of the labor market.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's obviously a a grim situation. And I think, you know, part of the much wider term, longer term and kind of wider uh, lens picture is that I mean, whatever the stock market might be saying, that it's pretty clear that there's long-term stagnation of the U.S. economy and most developed economies leading to a lower demand for labor. I
3: mean, and, and this is
0: something that I guess we discussed in terms of the labor force participation rate falling, just the uh, absolute number of people uh, in work, or at least as a percentage of the population. Um, so I wanted to turn a little bit to the kind of politics of the situation. Um, and talk a little bit also about interest rates, uh, because the Fed announced today, I think that the rock bottom interest rates would be maintained until the end of 2023. um, And they're desperate for any inflation, like above, you know, up to 2%. Um, So I mean, something that I was telling you before we started recording is that it seems like, uh, well, effectively, the neoliberal elites have been victims of their own success in this regard, that um, they've been so successful in breaking the back of labour, um, and consequently, there being today hardly any upward pressure on wages, um, that inflation has been completely conquered. Um, and that creates a problem now when they kind of want growth and want some inflation. Um, actually, just note for listeners, we discussed this question in a little bit more depth in episode 124 when we discussed Adam Tooze's essay uh, on the question of central banks. So if you want to uh, check out some of our other stuff on this, it's episode 124. Anyway, so back to what, was, uh, what I was saying, um, is that uh, another thing I noted today, the uh, Financial Times Alphaville column uh, asked, after noting that employee bargaining power is at a historic low. Uh, why, and here I'm quoting, why did it take so long for the Fed and other central banks to realize an inflationary spiral was no longer such a threat? Uh, a bigger issue going forward might be that if low unemployment no longer leads to inflation, then what does? Um, I know it's a big question, but do you want to actually try to field that one, or maybe just offer some commentary on, on that kind of what is really a kind of historically unique situation at least you know if one's used to looking at the surveying the field of the 20th century.
3: Yeah I guess I'll comment a bit on kind of fed strategy and uh, how it's going to interact with hopefully the return of a tight labor market um, and we can and let me know if I've missed any any part of your question addressing this. So I'd say first you know so the, the Fed announced, uh, yeah, pa- Chairman Powell announced yesterday that Fed interest rate and FOMC announced that Fed interest rates would remain at zero. I guess I'll clarify that rock bottom is zero in the U.S. We have uh, not gone to negative interest rates. Mm -hmm. Um, And those will not be raised for at least three years. And I think two weeks ago, the Fed announced, so it does a framework review kind of every decade to kind of adjust its thinking on either forward guidance or just kind of on general operations. And they announced that they would be targeting an average inflation rate of 2%, whereas in the past they have viewed that as a, a hard line to, to hit 2% and stay there. And now they're going to be targeting an average, which suggests that you know 50% of the time you'll be over 2%, and 50% of the time you'll be under 2%, and, and you'll average out to, to 2 And that, they have kind of, Chairman Powell has said that is a more aggressive take. I think some people have differing opinions on how aggressive that is. But given that, um, you, know, you could imagine a, a case where unemployment we think is still a bit too high perhaps it's at five percent and we think we could get it down to to three and inflation is already touching two and we have room to either move on interest rates or keep them at zero we would continue as opposed to increasing rates as soon as we hit two percent inflation we would keep them at zero in order to uh allow the labor market to tighten a bit more. And in the past, the Fed's view has has been such that so the Fed has a dual mandate of, you know, uh, inflation and employment. And so they've kind of I I would argue that they have focused more on the inflation target, I think other people would agree. And it would be better if we if we focused more on uh, very low unemployment or or put the same amount of emphasis on it. And so this sort of framework shift suggests that they will start to pay attention or to at least be a bit more aggressive to try to uh, keep that dual date in mind and work towards both. And so we actually employ America. Um, my colleague Skanda Amarnath has, Uh, during the framework review, published a proposal that the Fed should revise its framework to um, actually achieve a floor rate of gross labor income growth, as opposed to um, just simply targeting consumer price inflation or, you know, trying to target, um, I guess they don't have a a specific unemployment target, but trying to target low unemployment. And so this suggests that, you know, even if unemployment were to be extremely low and consumer price inflation were to be at its target of 2%, we would still want labor market income uh, or labor income to be growing. And, you know, the kind of theory behind that is, you know, when labor markets are sufficiently tight, workers have a lot of bargaining power and they should be able to drive wages up. However, we've seen many research studies to suggest that, you know, even in times of tight labor markets, we don't necessarily see the type of worker power that we should, we should expect to see, you know, because there's been a lot of uh, things to suggest this is due to, you know, increase monopsony power or, uh, decreases in unionization. You know, there's a lot of reasons for why uh, worker power isn't as high as it should be, but regardless, the fed should instead target labor market income growth, um, just directly. And so we would, you know, kind of conduct monetary policy for the sole purpose or for, you know, a, a strong purpose for increasing, um, income growth. And now I think, you know, Scana's <laughs> proposal obviously was not adopted in the framework review, but I think the Fed has kind of realized or at least started to move in that direction, though I would, I would not consider them to be as aggressive as I would like for them to be on, you know, worker power or, or wages. Um, and so I think in terms of the political part of that, you know, you I think hopefully, especially as there have been a lot of calls, especially on the left, to say that, you know, the stock market is not the economy. Many people have, you know, started to dig into the Fed's balance sheet and have suggested that, you know, they spend a lot of money bailing out large corporations and they don't spend a lot of money focusing on individual American households. And I think there's going to be a lot of political pressure, and there has been from several key people in Congress, you know, Maxine Waters, who is the chair of the House Financial Services Committee, kind of oversees... um, the Fed stuff on the House side, and several people on the Senate Banking Committee, and now there's this uh, Congressional Oversight Committee to oversee um, pandemic relief efforts through many of which were funneled through the Fed. Uh, And so I think there's been a lot of skepticism about what the Fed is doing to kind of bail out the American economy, and either how much of that is directly aimed at American Uh, workers or um, families, or how much kind of trickles down to those people. And some have argued that, you know, when you bail out, I don't know, for example, American Airlines, you know, American Airlines employs a lot of people. So by bailing them out, you keep those people on payroll. And other people have argued, well, um, you know, by bailing out American Airlines, they're still giving their, you know, CEO a bonus or something. And so perhaps it doesn't actually trickle down to their flight attendants. So I think there, you know, there's arguments on both sides. I would say I I think the Fed could do more for individual workers, but um, the Fed has been, Chairman Powell specifically, has been very insistent that fiscal support really should come from Congress. And, you know, for example, we sent, in the CARES Act, they sent out $1,200 checks to every American. Um, So each American worker got a stimulus check for $1,200. Canada did something similar. I think there were $2,000 checks at some point, and, and other European countries have done various stimulus checks. And so... Some people have called for Claudia Sahm, is a a economist who has called for automatic payments for the Fed to set up a a specific, you know, facility to send out checks to um, Americans in times of downturn. And there's, I think, a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of proposals out there that would take the Fed's authority and facilities to do those things even further than perhaps Chairman Powell agrees is either legal under the. Uh, Federal Reserve Authority, or should be actually, you know, relegated to them rather than to Congress. And and Powell has been, I think, quite conservative on what things should go through Congress and what things should go through the Fed, though he, he has been aggressive on some things. Um, so I I think the political aspect of that will be interesting to see what happens, you know, either after the election, if if we have a Biden administration and uh powell's term is up somewhat soon and so we'll we might see a shift in the chairmanship there but i think there will be i think your comment that kind of the stock market is not the real economy that call has been uh many on the left have said that in the last few months and so it will be interesting to see what the political pressures are both on congress and the fed but for now i think powell is sort of shifting the pressures of fiscal stimulus to congress and it's interesting you said that their forecast—I think at the beginning of our of our call—you said that their forecast assume additional fiscal stimulus. And I'm actually not. I would say Powell was sort of begging McConnell yesterday mm-hmm. during this press conference to pass additional fiscal stimulus. But I think the Fed's forecasts are actually assuming a very conservative level of fiscal stimulus. They're not so optimistic that we'll get, you know, a two or three trillion dollar package um, that we might need. So I don't know. It, uh, right now, it seems that they're trying to do negotiations for additional stimulus. I'm not sure where that will end up. And in terms of the Fed, I would prefer a a target, you know, specifically targeting something that uh, impacts workers as opposed to um, kind of just the unemployment rate or the inflation rate. But so far, we haven't seen those things happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I guess, obviously, within the I mean, larger historical, longer historical context of full employment being a fairly mainstream aim, uh, the fact that you talked about, you know, very low, uh, very low uh, unemployment targeting um, shows kind of how, how far we've fallen, I guess. So I mean, just to round this out, uh, very quickly, where do you fall on kind of the broader proposals, um, other than kind of some, you know, kind of going beyond the some of the more limited policy interventions and then monetary policy and and fiscal policy to kind of broader structural uh, proposals relating to either a jobs guarantee or to universal basic income. I mean, where do you locate yourself with regard to those proposals? Uh, I mean, just one comment from myself is that I think one of the only positive things to come out from the pandemic is maybe the discourse of essential workers. Um, you know, I know you had the on you kind of preferred kind of ironically to the fact that a lot of service workers were, you know, discussed as non-essential and so on. But obviously, um, it's very much those called, quote unquote, low skilled uh, who've proven themselves to be essential. So at least hopefully that the, the emergence of that discourse uh, will push things uh, politically in the right direction. Um, so anyway, just to restate the question, I mean, where do you where do you locate yourself in, in relation to some of these uh, bigger proposals?
3: Yeah, I guess, first all, in terms of your like, I'll just make a quick comment about sort of these low skilled workers and if uh, they'll be kind of respected or, or heralded. Uh, I'm not so convinced. I think there was a, a big discussion in Congress about hazard pay for those workers. You know, if you're having to show up to bag groceries at Whole Foods um, while, you know, wealthier people who can telework or, you know, you know, high skilled people who can telework or grocery shopping um, and these kind of mm-hmm. essential workers deserve so much respect. And, you know, we we really didn't do anything for them. And so I would, I would love to be optimistic and say that we will, you know, Americans will find a newfound respect for teachers or for grocery store workers or, you know, pharmacy workers, et cetera, that, you know, were deemed uh, low skill or whatever workers. Uh, but I'm, I'm not so convinced that shift will happen even if it should. Um, I, I guess in terms of a universal basic income or jobs guarantee, I think in terms of a jobs guarantee, obviously that would, uh, push a very tight labor market. I think there needs to be a big conversation about, I, I'm kind of a wonky person that cares a lot about the administration of these things. And so the details of that, I think need to be very important in order to make sure that we kind of center worker power and make sure that the way that we were to do that and the jobs that are available would kind of ensure that worker bargaining power um is increased and i think you know there have been a lot of really good proposals that have thought uh through those nitty-gritty details so i would love it if everyone in the country could that wants a job could have one but i think we need to talk a lot about the quality and the diversity of those jobs and um you know kind of who they're uh who they're best serving uh i have long joked on twitter that my idea of a jobs guarantee would be a a monthly so in the in the u.s we do a a monthly survey called the, the CPS, the community uh, survey uh, or the current population survey. And so the CPS is a monthly sample, kind of a census, but of a very small sample. And then we do a decennial census, which takes, you know, the full population demographics and whatnot. And I have long joked that we should, instead of doing a decennial census, we should turn the CPS into a monthly long form census so that we have a full picture of the population, you know, labor force status or whatnot. Um, and to do that, you know, every 10 years the US hires, the federal government hires a lot of workers to be census takers, to kind of take that information from households. And I have long joked that my idea of a jobs guarantee is to you know, anyone who wants a job can be a census taker. So we would have better labor market data, education data, all kinds of stuff. Um, and that, that's kind of a joke, but I, mm-hmm. I, I do firmly believe that like, it would improve both labor markets and the, the rich data we have for, for economic things. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of a job guarantee, there's a lot of details to iron out there. But um, in, in theory, I'm not sure that the U.S. will get there. I guess I would be more optimistic about the U.S. getting there uh, than, than to get to a universal basic income. Um, I am really delighted that we talked about UBI more in this Democratic primary process, but we did, you know, as opposed to in other years where it just wasn't discussed Um, but we did end up with Biden as the nominee, as opposed to, you know, some more liberal people who were running for the nomination. Uh, so I I think a lot of the discussion on that will be driven by where the Biden administration goes and where those economic advisors go. We've seen some Biden economic advisors like Ted Kaufman say that the pantry will be bare when Biden comes into office and we can't possibly do any more spending because the Trump tax cuts were so high and the COVID spending was so high. Uh, so I will, ho- I would hope that, you know, but there are other people on the Biden econvisor advisor team, like Heather Boucher, who has been, a, you know, it works at, she's the head of equitable growth, a left-leaning think tank who has been a big proponent of worker power and even proposals, um, like jobs guarantees and UBI, but, and specifically, uh, they kind of signed on to this proposal that, or this book that EA, uh, is a proponent of called recession ready, which is all about automatic stabilizers. And so, I will. I would hope that you know Heather and other members of you know, Janet Yellen and other members of the Biden administration econ team um, would be not so uh, into fiscal austerity. But it remains to be seen. Uh, but the economic, yeah. you know, there's a lot of research to suggest the positive economic effects of both UBI and Jobs Guarantee. I'm not sure that we'll see either happen uh, in the coming years in the U.S.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm very skeptical of, of UBI um, for a number of reasons. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I basically think, it's, I mean, I think the fact that loads of, you know, Silicon Valley are kind of behind it um, tells you, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, <laughs> And, and and if you were and you were able to have the degree of worker power to actually realize a high UBI, the kind of UBI that would actually allow people to live, um, you know, fulfilling lives, um, why not, you know, have a revolution instead of? You know, just <laughs> waiting this right. waiting for for. for the, yes, like the I
3: think government. this was kind of the this was like it was really funny when like Andrew Yang came out in support of UBI, and then people like you know Bernie and Warren, who are largely to the left of of Yang, were kind of like, wait, no, there are better. Like <laughs> there are just more important things to do than that. That would like increase everyone's life. Like yeah. you know, we're not opposed to giving people money, but like there are just better things to give people money for than nothing.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and, and you know that what w- what happens to bargaining power then if, uh, you know, if right. of of the capital realize, that oh, we actually don't need people very much at all. So,
3: <laughs> well, that's, I think that's Andrew Yang's whole thing is like, we're doing UBI because we'll just increase automation.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which uh, again, uh, if, if wages are so low, um, I'm not, sh- see, I'm not sure I see where the pressure for, uh, for, in, you know, investing in automation is actually coming from. So,
3: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, well, a, a grim picture, but uh, told very uh, fluently. So thank you very much, Liz.
3: Okay, well, this is so great. Um, thanks so much for having me. All
0: right, so we're here with Aaron Benanav, a researcher at Humboldt University Berlin, uh, who's also working on a global history of unemployment. Um, and we're going to be talking about his book, which we introduced at the top of the show. Hi, Arn, great to have you.
4: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so uh, I think we should start off talking about the obvious and talking about what listeners have just been hearing, which is that, you know, in the US, uh, now there's something like 100 million not in the labor force, there's 14 million unemployed, there's effectively this massive demobilization of the labor force through the lockdowns. Um, through furlough schemes, as you have in, in the UK. So, I mean, th- this is obviously a massive moment in terms of uh, the question of unemployment. And how do you see this kind of progressing? I mean, do, do you see this as making marking any real shift in employment
4: relations? I guess I think, so that's, yeah, it's a great question. I guess it's a question on everyone's mind. So my book is about automation and the future of work, but a big topic over the past few months, obviously, has been COVID and the future of work. Um, and I guess that where I think things are going is um, that economies have had a lot of trouble creating jobs now for quite a long time. So jobless recoveries uh, is one of the things that maybe you we're talking about, um, and, and certainly that we could talk about. Um, and I guess that the economy moving forward is just going to have, I think, a lot of trouble creating jobs for reasons that are actually very similar um, to the reasons of the past, Uh, which is just that the economy is going to recover very slowly and it's gonna have a lot of trouble creating jobs except through this kind of immiserating process where people are going to get a lot of, um, yeah, just very low quality, low productivity jobs, but even those are gonna be added to the economy very slowly. So I think we're expecting another lost decade and something that I think is really terrifying about the moment, especially for people roughly my age, you know, people in their late 30s or early 40s and, and younger is to have lived through two um, supposedly once in a lifetime type right. crises,
2: yeah,
4: um, which weren't just momentary, but like decade long uh weak recoveries that followed
2: would you just i suppose without anticipating um uh anticipating too much but would you say then covid is i mean so this is i suppose the big debate about covid how far is it accelerating changes or um issues that were already there and how far has it introduced elements that are novel
4: Mm. I mean, it's, it's funny to say, right, but it's like accelerating the slowdown. So (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it's speeding up the pace at which we slow down significantly.
2: Okay. Yeah, Yeah. I mean,
0: I guess you'd want to avoid both the approach which says, well, look, everything was more or less fine. You know, there was a kind of uh, healthy unemployment statistics, and then COVID came along and ruined everything. Um, as well as maybe the alternative one, which is that aha, you see, COVID only shows what was uh, what was coming for us anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, they
1: kind of it, it proved us right. This is a look, look, this is a glimpse of the future that we said was going to happen all along.
4: Well, I mean, that would be pretty hard to say, right? I don't think anyone except Mike Davis predicted anything like this was going to happen. I guess a lot of epidemiologists probably did but in, in in the i don't know kind of economic and social theory realm oh yeah no more, more just the mass
0: unemployment that it's like the the sort of uh un- the automation theorists who kind of use skewer yeah. you know, the whole book you know kind of going well you know this is the picture of a, of our future soon when robots come for our jobs
4: yeah well and of course you know i think part of the story too is just on the global level this it has been like this right for quite a long time i mean The degree to which so much labor around the world is like informal labor and people are kind of getting by in very difficult and insecure conditions. That has been true for a long time. But as we are learning now, and as of course we will learn over the next few decades, things can get substantially worse in unexpected ways.
2: One more more question on this particular issue, Aaron, which is, I suppose the... One thing that's kind of striking about COVID is how far the demobilization has been led by the state itself rather than being a kind of spontaneous collapse as a result of a economic crash, like you know, closer to the aftermath of the banking crisis in 2008. Do we see any differences in how that works out in terms of unemployment, given that it's kind of been, uh, you know, enforced through state action, like I say? But also, I suppose, a follow-on, a follow-on thought connected to that is how far does how far would we have seen a similar kind of collapse independently of a government or state attempts to shut down the economy um, in order to control the spread of the pandemic so i know there are a few countries which had Uh, which had kind of milder lockdown regimes or had very um, structured tight uh, structured uh, test and trace systems like South Korea and I wondered if you had any sense of how these different systems have played out and if that if it's possible to identify the impact of this kind of government demobilization of the labor force versus what we might have expected as a shift in consumer behavior businesses going bust um, an impact and kind of COVID impact separate from that of the state demobilization?
4: Yeah, I don't know if you've seen this piece, or I guess maybe it's a number of pieces by Gabriel mathy about the first services recession. But I think that that is a very powerful take on what's happened. Essentially, um, what he says is that the lockdown affected services, like consumer services, especially, first of all. And that's a real reversal of the normal course of a Recession, which tends to start in investment and construction. Um, and usually services and service jobs are the last to be hit and have the least amplitude of the wave, you know, the, the smallest downturn and slower also recovery, I guess, probably. Um, whereas in this case, the lockdown, because it was a government-instituted lockdown that just shut down all of this economic activity. Services took such a huge hit and they pulled so much um, Income that's usually stabilizing in the context of a recession out. So all of these restaurants movie theaters um, You know, yeah, just like a ton of of sort of normal consumer activity that disappeared from the economy uh, And of course, you know governments tried to step in and it's very interesting to do a kind of comparative analysis between the US switch Um, Had a very chaotic transition to unemployment um, insurance benefits, and many people weren't sure if they'd be able to get them, like Uber drivers and so on. Um, And also in the US, unemployment benefit systems have been eroded for a very long time, and many states have made it very much more difficult than it was in the past to get benefits, um, even when you were normally unemployed. Uh, But eventually, people did get on them, and with the federal subsidy, they actually, in some cases, earned higher incomes and like poverty declined in the US. Whereas in Europe, I think in many cases with the furlough regimes, you actually had a much smoother transition to trying to replace the income lost through the lockdowns. Uh, But people were usually remunerated at a lower level than um, the wages they had earned before. So I think that had a different kind of effect on demand. I think it'd be really interesting to look at the South Korean case that you mentioned. I actually don't know that much about it.
2: What did you spend your Trump bucks on?
4: <laughs> Moving to Berlin. <laughs> Getting out. <laughs> I'm weird. like That's one of those good, people. <laughs> I'm like the I'm the example of that guy who like, yeah, saw, yeah, whatever. Just like got out of America, used the money. <laughs>
0: Uh, very good. Well, let's turn to your book, actually, because uh, I wanted to ask you what your broader research is on, um, say that it's kind of a critical world history of unemployment, um, and how your book on automation fits into that broader research. I should say at this stage, I, I mean, I already told you before we were recording, but for uh, for the sake of listeners, I think the book is fantastic. I would encourage them all to go out and buy it. It's very short, um, which is always a good thing about a book, and especially when it packs in as much as this does, uh, as it engages with the sort of automation discourse, the kind of people who are Always arguing that you know robots are about to steal your job tomorrow, uh, as well as providing a really well argued um, course through deindustrialization and secular stagnation, um, and a kind of brief history of utopianism and solutions to to the problem, which I think is great. So um, it packs in a lot. So I just wanted to uh, to say that and to highlight to to readers that it's definitely worth picking up when it comes out. Um, but I guess I, yeah. So my question here, I guess, is how does that work on automation fit into your broader um research project
4: well thanks for um thanks for saying such nice things about the book i definitely think the best things about the book are are that it's short and it's not very expensive Um, (laughs) but uh yeah i would say my my larger research project is about first of all kind of trying to measure or study the history of attempts to measure how high unemployment is and I think something that's sort of paradoxical about the unemployment rate is that it's really good at measuring how much uh, joblessness there is in the economy when unemployment rates are very low. Like the unemployment rate works best in a very high functioning economy that's mm. running close to full employment. Yeah. But as the unemployment rate rises and you get further from full employment, the rate works less and less well. Um, and the kind of extreme case of this is uh, when you go to, Developing or third world or global south countries and they try to measure unemployment and it just doesn't work at all, right? Um, it's not very effective in that context and that's where the concept of informality comes from so I study that And the history of all these other Sort of statistical and sort of near statistical concepts that people try to come up with Facing an economy where people have been looking for work so long that they take up kinds of work like little jobs um, Painting houses or like working in your uncle's shop or something like that that are that become increasingly difficult for unemployment statistics to measure um, yeah no, I so think that's, that's sort of the me. yeah sorry
0: no I mean I think that's that's a very important point to to make and um, it, it's always something that strikes me when they're you know you hear kind of economists talking about like, well, you know, the, the kind of US labor markets pretty healthy right now. And you just think, well, but how many people have actually dropped out entirely or are now kind of working part time jobs where they were previously working full time jobs, and they need a full time job, you know, um, and it's something that amazingly still passes very much under under the radar. Um, but I, I did want to turn now to the automation discourse, um, as it's called, I suppose, um, before, uh, before we get into the questions of deindustrialization and unemployment and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so in regard to the automation discourse and the automation theorists that you describe, uh, I mean, I think listeners will be pretty familiar, uh, with what that refers to. So it's this idea that robots are coming for your jobs. Um, and that maybe as a consequence that this means penury for the masses. And therefore we need something like a universal basic income. I think that's probably the standard formulation. Um, but as you discuss, um, right at the top of the book, really that. There's right and left wing versions of this. There are different, I guess, uh, different colors to the automation theorists. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about who these people are and uh, how they differ between them? Mm.
4: Yeah, so I I was really interested in looking at like why there's so many people who have trouble finding work um, and all the different kind of global causes of that phenomenon. And then here was this incredibly simple kind of elegant explanation for it, right? Um, that the robots are coming for your jobs and like the news about it coming out, so much anecdotal evidence, that's really enticing and kind of incredible, right? Um, you know, computers are writing um, sports news stories and computers are like, you know, and symphonies and they're they're patrolling our parking lots and stuff. Um, and eventually, they'll be able to open doors and maybe even fold laundry to things which they still have quite a lot of trouble doing. Uh, and, yeah, there's very different versions of the account of, like, um, who's saying this? Obviously, on one, on one side of the spectrum, you have, um, you have people like Elon Musk uh, and, you know, the kind of crew of turtlenecked Silicon Valley people uh, talking about the brilliant, incredible technologies that they're developing. And kind of expressing their own concern about how we're going to take care of um, All the people who are losing jobs as a result and then one of those people uh, from that world Andrew Yang ran for president, which was amazing like that he actually did that and that he garnered You know a small but significant portion of the vote and took a lot of these ideas like basic income into the mainstream um, and I guess what's interesting to me about that is that a lot of people associate UBI with the left, and they think of universal basic income as a real sort of humanistic welfare proposal. Um, yeah, it's free, it's, it's free
0: stuff. So that must come from the left, right? Uh.
4: Yeah. Uh, and so it's surprising to find out that some of the biggest proponents of basic income who are being used by these um by these silicon valley types are not left-wingers at all but charles murray who's very famous as being like the worst racist kind of theorist in america right he wrote the bell curve um and then wrote a book about the 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 collapse of like white white people's lives in america um but then he wrote he wrote a bunch of books about basic income and a lot of his proposals for basic income which which are based completely in um his read of Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek and these kind of neoliberal thinkers. That's where a lot of this stuff comes from. And those are the ideas that uh, I think had the biggest impact both on Silicon Valley ideas about what they were doing and about basic income, but also a lot of the kind of professors, these MIT professors, um, Andrew McAfee and um, Eric Brynjolfsson, who, who also write about this. Um, so that's, the, that's, I would say, the right wing side. But then, of course, there's a left-wing side that I'm very sympathetic to. Um, and I think people like um, Peter Fraze, who wrote the book Four Futures, which is a book that mm-hmm. I really like, uh, Inventing the Future, um, and, you know, and a whole kind of wider set of maybe we would say, like, left liberal thinkers on this as well, who are yeah, less I mean There's, radical, there's Ar- Aaron, uh, Bastani than who I, Aaron
0: Bastani, who I should highlight, has been on the podcast before. That's another one for mm-hmm. listeners if you want to check out. Um, but I, you kind of round these all up, uh, and call them late, late capitalist utopians. Um, maybe you could explain what that means. I I assume you're using utopian, in, um, in its sort of dual sense and in, in the sense of it being a, a dream, but also being impossible.
4: Yeah, I guess part of what appealed to me so much, and I should say, you know, for full disclosure that my father was like, uh, was a researcher in automation, uh, in the eighties and he Um, you know, he was working on getting computers to solve logic proofs. There's a big era of, of automation thinking, obviously in the 80s that then collapsed, right? Um, so he went from that into the kind of tech world and, um, I sort of lived through a certain kind of experience of that, uh, transition. Um, not one that led to great riches, you know? Uh, and I think a lot of the computer programmers who, who were part of the tech bubble didn't walk away with, with very much um but uh sorry yeah, right.
0: yeah no no and so i mean one thing that you point out as well is that or one of the one of the positive things you have to say about the automation discourse about the automation theorists is that they do turn our attention to consistently low demand for labor around the world which is really the the sort of common theme running through your whole book um so maybe you could just introduce what that means, um, and I think George is going to have a question on this specifically right after.
4: Great, yeah. No, I mean the the idea that there's just so few jobs, like the the number of jobs being created is very low. That there are jobless recoveries. Um, that the labor share of income is falling. That the idea that in the end, all of these kind of terrible tendencies in the world are really due to the creation of these incredible technologies that are annihilating work. And that all we have to do is kind of push through the catastrophe and see the the possibilities on the other end, right? And to change the way that the world is so that um, Mm. instead of being a nightmare, the emergence of these automation technologies could be a beautiful dream. And I guess that as someone who's maybe sometimes giving over a little bit too much to catastrophic thinking about the future... For me, reading these positive accounts and, and really detailed attempts, maybe not always so detailed, but more detailed than many I had encountered, attempts to think through what a post-work world would look like. Um, so one of my favorite books in that genre actually is this book by an old friend of mine, Manu Sadia, who wrote Treconomics. Um, and really thinking about you know how technologies like the replicator, um, which of course, in a, in a world like ours would result in incredible um, loss of income for so many people. And Peter Fraze has a whole beautiful discussion of that, um, that with a seemingly small institutional shift in how people earn their incomes, uh, we could suddenly like get out of the nightmare scenario and leave the world of Trump and populism and um, you know inability to respond to climate change. We could just sort of flip the switch and end up in a very different and much more beautiful um, mm. society
1: yeah there's definitely some some sort of tech, techno joy um and enthusiasm and energy in in these sorts of accounts. Um, but I guess maybe to sort of see the the flip side of it or to dig into, I guess what this calling this uh, attention to the consistently low demand for labor um, reveals, what's I guess my question is what's the role of deindustrialization um because it's obviously been a disaster in the West, and I think a Everyone knows this this story insofar as it relates to employment in the West, but maybe a bit less well known is um, or to the general public at least perhaps is how global this phenomenon is, and industrial jobs may have gone to China, but even China is deindustrializing so and that's without mentioning places like Brazil, of course, um, or South Africa. so maybe you know what do you think what does industri- deindustrialization look like? I guess that's the question mm.
4: Yeah, so I think one, well, so one thing to say about that is that, yeah, people know, as you said about it happening in the West, but it's really a global phenomenon. And that's something that's very surprising because people tend to think the obvious explanation of it is that jobs are leaving the West and they're going to places like Mexico and China. But Mexico has been deindustrializing in the sense that the share of its workforce employed in manufacturing um, has been declining since the 80s. Um, and more recently, this is now happening as well in china it's really only since the the kind of early to mid uh, 2010s or twenty teens that it's been happening there. But yeah, across the world, a lot of um, so, uh, global south countries have now seen decades of either falling or stagnant um, manufacturing employment shares and that's really devastating for those countries because industrialization has been the kind of pathway to um, high levels of development that countries have been offered, um, or they've been asked to, or they've been pressured to um, to try to achieve, and that they've made a lot of efforts to achieve. And so, global deindustrialization has really cut off those pathways um, to development.
2: So, is but, that mm-hmm. a stalled? Is that a stalled trajectory of development, or is that is does that indicate something? Um, Deeper and perhaps more sinister about the emerging shape of the global economy?
4: Yeah. So, one explanation for why this would be happening around the world would be automation, right? Like, it could just be the case that all around the world, these brilliant new technologies are coming online. And as they have done so, um, the number of manufacturing jobs has just declined everywhere. So, it wouldn't matter how developed you are, Um, even poor countries adopting these technologies would. Uh, end up on the same pathway. And that's when we have to actually look at the data and see um, what's happening. And what I found, um, and I think this is, you know, in a lot of ways, not that surprising, is that um, what's really happening is that it's not that uh, productivity, which is what you'd expect, like productivity, you'd expect if it were automation, that productivity would be growing at a rapid rate. So even if workers were being uh, laid off and kicked out of their factory jobs, the remaining workers would seem ever more productive as more and more of the work in these factories was done by machines. Um, But that's not happening. Uh, Productivity growth rates are actually falling. And so the real explanation for deindustrialization happening all around the world is a slowdown in the economic growth engine. So uh, all of these countries, even um, poorer countries, and of course, China is really important exception though an exception that helps prove the rule um because china's growth has really come at the expense of other developing countries uh growth rates so all around the world you have this really dramatic slowdown and i guess um that slowdown is what's explaining for me a much broader slowdown in in the global economy and it's also the thing that has to be explained uh it's the real cause of of why there's a persistently low demand for labor, why people are having so much trouble finding work, Um, and if automation isn't the explanation, then what is? That's kind of the investigative story of of my book.
2: So we we have a, I think in the West, and listeners to this podcast, and I suppose people more generally who are plugged in to these debates will have a sense of the consequences of deindustrialization, unemployment, and underemployment in Western countries. It'll be associated with a certain kind of politics, Um, Trumpism, Brexit, um, populist politics in Europe. Um, It'll be understood in a certain kind of geographical sense, uh, you know, smaller provincial towns, Rust Belt kind of areas, um, old working class jobs, um, this kind of thing. So we we have, I think, you know, people have a kind of handholds for understanding these processes in the West. But could you maybe tell us a little bit more concretely about what does it mean for a country like Mexico to be undergoing a process of deindustrialization, de- or for other countries which are um, middle or even perhaps still low-income countries, if their industrialization stalls, what, what does that look like in terms of demographics, um, uh, society, politics, and so on? Can you give us a few insights?
4: Yeah, so um, that's a great question. So uh, there's this great sociologist at UCLA, ching kuan Lee, who wrote a book um, called Against the Law that's about China. Uh, and at the end of that book, she talks about what she calls global rust belts and global sun belts. And I think that's a really good way of thinking about what's been happening in the world economy. So um, really in the early part of the post-war period and down through the seventies, you had the development of, Very like state fostered industrialization, um, called in the kind of technical lingo, import substitution industrialization, um, in a lot of developing countries. And actually, Brazil is one of the most successful examples of this. Uh, And starting actually in the late 60s and early 70s, and then continuing down through the present, um, a lot of Developing countries uh, realize that they're being locked out of, or they're not participating in um, this vast growth of export markets for manufactured goods, um, and so they reorient uh, towards producing for the world market. And so you get in many countries, you know, maybe more in a way in the '70s and '80s, um, and then onward the development of these sun belts, often located far away. So, like for example, in Mexico, famously, um, you have a kind of Mexico City um, metropo- metropolitan industry that is very ISI, very, very kind of focused on the national um, market. And then further away, um, closer to the U.S. border, you have the maquiladoras, and you have this kind of export-oriented um, industrial growth. And so All around the world, you have this phenomenon. Even in China, in the Northeast, there's a huge old kind of Maoist industrial area that's now their rust belt, right? Where all of these people have lost their jobs in state-owned industries, like really millions and millions of people. Um, And then in China, for example, in the Pearl River Delta area, you have the growth of the Sun Belt that's really integrated into global supply chains. And so really the way deindustrialization looks around the world is not, just the kind of rusting of industry in certain areas, but a kind of imbalance between the rust belts and the sun belts. So the sun belts have expanded, um, but the number of jobs created there is usually not as many. China would be an exception to this in the, in the late 90s and, and the, in the first decade of the 2000s, but in other countries generally um, for that whole period, uh, the sun belts never really grow to the extent that the rust belts are declining. And that's, of course, even true in the United States. I mean, maybe, I don't know how well known that is, but um, in places like Tennessee and Chattanooga um, and in other southern um, right-to-work states uh, in the U.S., you have the growth of sunbelts, right? You have you have new um, manufacturing plants that have been opening and hiring, mm. but the number of jobs being created there is much smaller than the number of jobs lost in the traditional rust belt.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, well, the situation somewhere like Brazil, I mean, where I live is particularly grim. I mean, I think it's the proportion of uh, industrial production that contributes to GDP has fallen by half from something like somewhere in the 30s down to about 15 or less than that, about 12 now. So um, in Brazil's case, output as well as uh, its share, manufacturing share of employment has fallen drastically. But then you have the other side, and people I think would probably point to these It's going, well, but the situation isn't so bad, is it? Places like Germany or South Korea or Japan, where um, you have Still higher shares of industrial employment, and also lots of robots. Uh, that is to say, I mean, lots of lots of automation, um, much more than you have in the U.S. Um, so you have something like fifteen to seventeen percent. Excuse me, fifteen to seventeen percent uh, share of uh, manufacturing employment in those countries I mentioned, compared to about eight for the U.S. or the U.K. Um, so that, on the one hand, seems to suggest that the 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 situation for industrial for for industry and and that perhaps deindustrialization um, is not guaranteed for everybody but at the same time it also seems to puncture uh, what the automation theorists tend to argue which is that robots will steal your jobs so this is a place where it seems you know Germany South Korea or Japan it looks like actually robots don't steal your jobs robots help to keep your job
4: yeah that's totally right and I think. It's really, that is a very surprising phenomenon, right? That the US and UK would have very low rates of roboticization and have lost the most jobs and that the countries that have a lot of robots seem to have used them to keep their jobs. But that kind of begins then to get at the larger story of why this is happening. Um, There's just so much now manufacturing capacity coming online around the world. So many suppliers um, who are competing in world markets and of course, you know the largest or best placed players retreat to the apex of those supply chains, um, where they are able to cream off a lot of um, the value produced, um, though not necessarily hiring very many people. Um, whereas everyone else is fighting for pieces of these um, these supply chains, and the result of that is that if you are able to mechanize, even a quite wealthy country or wealthy countries like. Um, Japan, South Korea, and Germany, if they're able to really mechanize quite a lot, then they can do quite well in those markets, uh, in international markets. but it really comes at the expense of production elsewhere. And I think you see that you know at every level of um, income or every level of sort of like how high tech the industry is globally. So for example, you know China was able to do very well for a long time. In rather low tech um, jobs like uh, sewing and you know apparel and shoe manufacture and so on, and also in the low tech aspects of high tech, so like assembling electronics. And as they did that, and as they grew very quickly in a slow world, slow growing world market, they took market share away from countries at kind of equivalent levels of um, development, or actually just mm-hmm. slightly higher than they were, right, higher than they were in development. So. China grew at the expense of places like Brazil and Mexico. Um, And then even at the highest level, right, I mean obviously this is a part of a larger story now where you have to start talking about the dollar and about the structure of the world economy. But um, Japan and Germany have done quite well more recently at the expense of um, the United States and the UK. So you have kind of trade surplus countries that have or current account surplus countries that have, had, have been able to maintain their manufacturing employment share, but it corresponds to a kind of um, over a, a faster rate of deindustrialization in the trade deficit countries. So it's like on the whole, there's this downward trend, but then where countries end up in that has to do with how well they compete in this highly oversupplied uh, global manufacturing market.
0: Yeah, no. So I mean, you end up what ends up looking much more like a sort of zero sum game. And I think looking over to the history of economic development over the 20th century, it's hard to avoid the depressing conclusion that many countries in the world who didn't get on that uh who, uh, well, who weren't, you know, the kind of tiger economies, effectively, um, have missed their chance for catch up growth, um, they kind of missed the boat, um, sometime in the in the 1970s, I guess. Um, I don't know if that's a conclusion you'd come to. But um, actually, before we discuss that, cause maybe that'll uh, be more of a focus of the discussion a little bit later on, I want to head over to George, uh, so that we can discuss services more specifically, rather than uh, industrial yeah. manufacturing.
1: yeah sluggish services um so yeah I think it's quite widely discussed the low productivity growth in services um and maybe it's you know it's mopped up some unemployment from from deindustrialization i mean is this is this a good thing that people are now going from deindustrialized context to um working services
4: I mean you know it's uh probably for a lot of people i think as is well known that's been a pretty bad drop, right, from being in, at least in the U.S., like unionized jobs that pay relatively good rates to working at Walmart. That's obviously kind of the classic example. Um, Certainly, you know, I think that governments, when they realized that unemployment rates were high and that they were having a lot of trouble reducing them, less in the U.S. and more in Europe, they thought of that as a kind of Structural adjustment problem, right? They thought of it as we have too many people waiting around for jobs that will never appear And we need to encourage them into these new jobs and they saw um, They even looked to the United States as a kind of model and said, okay If we can just kind of get unemployment to fall like they're in the US um, That's a first step on the kind of road to a longer recovery Um, and Of course, it's better Probably in some way. I mean, I don't know. I I it's hard for me to speak for other people, but it's like better I well, the the point maybe I should say the point that neoliberals made is it's better to be active than inactive Right and they described the world they were trying to create as an active society. Yeah um, but of course this has come with really rising inequality and a whole range of kind of socially destructive tendencies in society so it's yeah. certainly how things have evolved. I guess I'm not normally asked normative questions. <laughs> I guess I think it's all really bad <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean it, it does sound it does come across pretty bad, but I mean you know I, I guess the the story
0: runs counter to what one would assume in terms of a kind of Progressive view of history that you move from agriculture to industry to services. So the move to services is a good thing. And yet right. it's been such a social disaster, both in terms of um, making it harder to organize workers and decreasing their bargaining power as a consequence um, to um, basically economies being dependent on a sector which has very low productivity growth uh, and even spurring financialization possibly as a consequence. I mean, is that the, is that the picture that you would, uh, would you agree with this picture, I guess, that I've painted?
4: There's this amazing, um, you know, he he was uh, Daniel Bell. He started off really well kind of working with Adorno and Horkheimer. And then mm. as he moved away from Marxism, he he sort of his ideas degenerated. But um, he he had this kind of, amazing book, The Coming of Post-Industrial Society, and he talked about what it was going to look like, and it was all tennis coaches and Michelin star chefs and, you know, mostly scientific researchers and engineers, and it kind of painted this incredible picture of a high productivity, high growth economy that was transitioning from industry to services, and that was overcoming all of these problems, right? people actually don't like working in factories. And that work is really stultifying and boring and it's dangerous and it's bad for your health. Um, And so this was supposed to be a really great thing. And then he has this like paragraph in his book where he says, I mean, so one thing that could go wrong is like, maybe these jobs will be really low productivity and then the whole economy is gonna slow down and that'll be bad. But he's like, that's just a possibility that could happen. And he spends about a paragraph talking about it. And that's just precisely what happened, right? Like you didn't get that beautiful transition from like a high-growing economy that, that, as you were saying, sort of structurally transitions from agriculture to manufacturing services. That last step was a real step downward in terms of growth rates. Um, and I guess that's something that's really important to think about about a capitalist economy, is that even if incomes are rising, um, there are structural reasons Uh, Why you kind of need you need fast growth for workers to be benefiting, at least in terms of their incomes uh, from, you know, continually higher levels of um, average uh, income. And so in these societies that start stagnating um, and then in some cases stagnate very badly. Um, you see really rising inequality and in all of these kinds of very negative impacts on workers' bargaining power and on their ability to have a say. Not just, I think, you know, the fall in the labor share of income and these kind of and low wages, we should always think of that more as like a signal of what's happening, right? Or an indicator of the fact that workers just have much less power. And having much less power means giving up a lot more of your life um, than just what's indicated by having a low wage.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a very good way to put it. Some of the reasons proffered for why this is, why this, why the situation has emerged where the transition from industry to services hasn't been progress really at all, or for most of the world's population, it hasn't been anyway. Um, I think one is that, and, and you mentioned this in the book, uh, or you nod at it that some people argue that there, we've reached the frontier of technological advance, that basically um, there isn't higher productivity growth because everything has been invented that needs to be invented, um, which you really dismiss, and I would dismiss as well. I, I mean, I don't, I can't buy that. Um, I think the other argument that one might make, or counter-argument to the kind of gloomy picture that you paint in describing these uh, historical changes is is that, well, maybe you just need more investment. You know, if, if um, you have the stagnation, which is basically due to too low investment, uh, you need you need basically to invest in new technologies. Um, and that would require, uh, depending on your point of view, either smarter capitalists or a smarter state, a start, smarter and more active and bigger state. Um, what do you think about those arguments? Um, or is it, I think as you point out in the book, that actually there's a problem of overcapacity, which won't be just simply resolved by um, capitalists being smarter and investing more um, or
4: the state investing more. I think it's it's fascinating and maybe it's unsurprising. And, you know, um, Jeff Mann has written about this, like the, the return of Keynesianism um, is unsurprising in a certain sense, because it's really obvious that in a certain sense, you know, you can see overproduction as underinvestment, like un- that, that is the main cause of, of what's gone wrong is that rates of investment have fallen. Um, and so it makes sense to think about trying to raise them. It's a very powerful take on what's happening and it, it makes sense that, a lot of, that it appeals to a lot of people. But the problem with Keynesianism has always been its inability to think about the structural causes for low rates of investment. Um, That's always been a problem, you know, going back to the 70s, the inability to think about those structural causes or to see the the main reason as like a lack of animal spirits or for some reason, capitalists have just lost that kind of like joie de vivre of being a capitalist and they just (laughs) can't um, get up the energy anymore to do it. And so they need all this coaxing and encouragement. And states have actually just been doing that this whole time like states have been encouraging capitalists to invest and in trying to do everything they can Screwing over workers as much as possible like creating all of these I mean just even recently in the us like twice now They've done this thing where they say you can just bring all your profits. that so you've earned a broad home You don't have to pay any tax like a tax jubilee On bringing money home and then they will invest this money and then it just gets distributed as um as you know, uh, share buybacks and dividends and stuff. So it's clear that the, the reasons for this lack of investment are structural, that they're grounded in massive overproduction that isn't going to be fixed by um, investing more. And I think that that is something that it's, we seem to be on a very long road to people being willing to admit, because the political consequences are enormous, to say that um, all of our efforts to restart growth for 30 or 40 years now have failed, even 50 years have failed. Um, and that just might mean that this system is really um, that all the kind of politics that kind of see restoring growth rates as their, their, their core, their presupposition, that though we have to abandon those. And if anything, I mean, climate change eventually has to convince people that um, that's just off the car off, off the table.
0: Yeah. So I mean, obviously the, the picture you paint, the argument that you make is that this low growth situation is our future, um, that there isn't any way to kind of wish that away or any kind of clever policy tools to circumvent that. Um, I mean, so and, and you address the argument that some might retort that, well, expecting levels of growth such as we had in the West um, and not just in the West, actually, uh, in the, you know, 30, 30 Glorieuses, the, the Golden Age, um, you know, is expecting too much. That's not going to return. The kind of normal capitalist growth rate is much lower. Um, and that if you look at the kind of pre-World War I period, you know, our period's sort of like that. So we should just maybe just adjust to that reality instead of expecting a return to a very particular historically exceptional um, sort of phase of capitalist growth. And you argue against that for an important reason. Maybe it'd be good to hear that.
4: Yeah, I think on the one hand, I think we're going to see how low it goes, right? It's not really clear that it's going to stabilize at a level like it was before World War I. But even back then, I mean, back then, there were many more people working agriculture or who could in some way access their means of life by non-market or relatively non-market means. Um, all around the world like uh there were you know most countries were being actively deindustrialized by european uh colonialism and imperialism and even in that you know you had growth rates of around two percent per year in the in the 50 years um sorry right? 40 years or so before world war one but uh even at that time you know the the consequences for those people who were in industry they, they had very precarious existences and um, inequality was rising and it gave rise to these very tumultuous social movements to transform society. And I do think that is a good model of what's happening today, right? We do live in a time of, um, of, of precarity and tumultuous kind of social uprisings as we've seen again just now in the United States. And the question is where all of those things are heading.
2: Surely, surely the difference is um, there. You had the rising capacity of an organised labour movement to mount a significant challenge to um, those power structures in place at the beginning of the twentieth century and in the um, in the Edwardian era. Whereas now it's the opposite. Surely, yeah. there is no um, that political capacity seems to be absent. And it seems deracination, anomie, um, fragmentation and disorganization is the order of the day.
4: Yeah. No, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think that the thing about the earlier moment is that it was a period when also another way to think about it is that it was a period when industrialization was happening. And the question was, who would this be for and who would rule this process? Right. And there was a very strong claim being made by working class movements that they should Take hold of this process of industrialization and turn it towards their own ends um, for the benefit of both themselves and, and humanity. Uh, and today we live at the end of that process in a period of long deindustrialization, um, which has had the effect of fragmenting the working class and um, making for a kind of period of social movements and uprisings, but that don't. As of yet, have the organizational capacity, and also don't have, as of yet, a kind of widely held vision of the world that they would be trying to build um, to replace this one. And so, I guess in some ways, I think, you know, I've, I mean, what you said just now, I, I've had that kind of aspects of that kind of catastrophic vision of um, the, the kind of at least pessimism about the possibility of social change today. But I think that in a way, the rise of the automation discourse is, is part of an attempt to kind of begin to think a positive vision. And I think the green new deal, fully automated luxury communism, you're seeing now an attempt to think about a positive account of where we could go with this, um, or where we could go, how we could get beyond, this world and i think that i don't know i i, I have a little hope in that That's but it doesn't uh, change the fact of the fragmentation of the class at least yet
2: that said um they i mean the globe the luxury communists seem to have abandoned all of that um in the last six months or so since uh, since labor lost the election in the uk and now it's all about how they want to dragoon us into um war communism not even the green new deal but it's going to be a, a whole new model of um kind of forced production in advance of the looming climate apocalypse so um i mean that's one fringe of it anyway much more pessimistic anyway i'll uh, hand over to alex because um
4: we have to come up with some better (laughs) stories (laughs) that's that's the urgency of coming up with a positive vision i guess quite so yeah yeah
0: yeah so i mean I think I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about the politics that we that you were already hinting at. Um, but just before that, I think maybe you should round out the argument that you present in your book about um, by turning to employment, actually, which is the the last substantial chunk of it. Um, so what you point out is that uh, what has what used, I guess, a category that was invented which was called kind of non-standard employment, is actually the majority of uh, the global employment picture. 74% of the world uh, does not have permanent employment. It's informal, temporary, and so on, precarious, irregular. Um, And I think that would probably not come as too much of a surprise, I guess, if people think about masses in China or any place in the sort of developing world. Um, But even in the rich world, that is increasingly the picture. Um, You have a kind of bifurcation in labor markets in rich countries. So maybe if you could talk us through that um, before we move on to the politics.
4: Yeah, so I guess in an an earlier era or like as the kind of full employment vision of the wartime and early post-war period um, generalized, there was this sense that everyone really in the world was going to eventually become part of this standard workforce, and of course, it was only a small part of the workforce then. But the build out of um, welfare states in the West and the attempt to build developmental states in the Global South um, was part of a story in which you know there was actually some increase in the number of people in standard employment. But that project failed quite early in the Global South already. In the in the sixties, um, people were noticing that uh, huge numbers of people in urban areas were um, showing up doing this kind of low return, low wage, um, service work, just showing up like as porters, carrying things around, um, working as, um, cigarette, um, uh, selling loose cigarettes and so on. Um, I often think about how when Eric Gardner died in, in New York, um, after being arrested for selling Lucy's that, you know, around the world, it's like a really common job, right. To sell single cigarettes yeah, on the street. Yeah. Um, and so you have this kind of growth first in the global south of this massive, informal workforce. And then, of course, in the north as well, you have more and more people um, in jobs. There's a lot to do with the decay of the welfare state, rather than the failure, as it were, um, to build one. And I guess in the book, I think about that as being about a growing number of workers being exposed to a low labor demand economy like what the welfare state did and what standard employment did, especially in Europe, where um, people who have standard job contracts or permanent employment are really protected um, often from individual firing. Um, and so they, they really have a kind of secure hold on their job. As more and more people lose those kind of protections or fail to acquire them, in the case of new labor market entrants, it means that they're exposed to the ebb and flow of the demand for labor. So when there are very few jobs available, um, even if they have a job, they experience that as a growing insecurity uh, that makes it very hard for them to um, bargain for higher wages. But just generally, again, I I think of that in terms of their autonomy in their job, right? Um, When the demand for labor is low, people lose autonomy at work and they lose their capacity to fight for themselves. And so, yeah, that's just been Um, the trend and I think a lot about how welfare states have deteriorated in different places um, and how that's created a kind of um, uh, topography of superfluity across the world that differs depending on how those labor market institutions have decayed Mm. over time. So, I mean, just
0: maybe we should, just before we finish off this section, address what I guess would be the argument directed at, let's say, France saying, well, you know, they need to continue to flexibilize their labor force? Because what you have is this, you have people with secure, uh, permanent employment, uh, with still, um, a, you know, a certain degree of rights, um, and a mass who are uh, underemployed or unemployed. Uh, and therefore, we need to rebalance that um, to recreate a degree of economic dynamism. Um, what would you answer to that?
4: You know, I think it's very interesting, like even Larry Summers, right, recognizes after having advocated something like flexibilization for a very long time, that this has just ended in disaster, because ultimately, um, the idea there is that if you uh, force people to become more insecure, to take the work that's available, to raise the labor force participation rate, that that has to be the start of, a re- that has to be that has to be creating the conditions for restarting the growth engine. But if the growth never comes, if you just have this stagnation uh, of the economy that's getting worse, then you're just exposing people to that insecurity. Um, you're not making anything better. And, and the effect of it is to um, make it more like the US where, where a really sizable portion of the growth of a sm- the, the economy is growing more slowly and more of the growth is growing, going to the highest earners. So instead of getting something good, you get um, you get more slow growth and higher inequality. Yeah. And you have all
0: this sort of under consumption effect as a consequence as well. So
4: so now we're going to
0: turn to the politics uh, or a section I'm calling true and false utopias. (laughs) Um, And we're going to start, I guess, going through some of the arguments that you present against some of the potential solutions for the situation of uh again what is the keystone of the book which is a low demand for labor around the world um so there's first you address the argument put forward by radical keynesian so maybe you could talk us through that briefly and uh tell us what's wrong with it
4: so that that argument is i mean i think we we talked about this a little bit before right the idea that um mm. the real cause of underinvestment is um a lack of consumer demand and uh, that the the solution here is just to um, pump up the economy. And the, the Keynesianism got more radical in the sense that um, Keynesians are now advocating more public investment. I don't think any of them really know exactly what they mean by that, but they are saying things like a Green New Deal. I don't know exactly if anyone's clearly, maybe the most radical kind of Verso author, Green New Deal people are advocating actual public state-owned companies doing this kind of investment. But for the most part, they mean subsidies for private uh, investors. And, you know, the idea is then obviously to reinflate the economy. But um, the truth is that Keynesianism has just been going on for a very long time. And what we've seen since the 1970s is this incredible growth of um, uh, state debt to GDP ratios. States have taken on so much debt, they're kind of, in many cases, back where even higher than they were at the end of World War II. So we've had the equivalent over a longer period of time of like war levels of spending to try to revive the economy. And it's not happening. And the reason is because there's this very structural um, condition, which we talked about before, global overcapacity. And I think that, you know, the, the thing is that the most radical versions of this program, um, they, I, I mean, if you read William Beveridge, who wrote Full Employment and a Free Society, which is a pretty incredible account of how um, you could try to really uh, get Britain into this very high speed uh, growth pattern, um, his proposals are much more radical than the proposals that people are making today, I think, in effect. Um, but these proposals were, of course, rejected because they uh, interfere with capitalist control over the lever of investment. And I think that the, the main thing about what's happening today is that um, as the economy turns down, capitalists are not investing and their control over, their kind of stranglehold over the economy, their capacity to refuse to invest um, has been this incredible political lever for them. And uh, they're very, yeah, they're going to be very resistant to giving that up. And if you want them to give it up, you have to um, threaten them with really transformative social change to take away their control over the lever of investment. I think I saw that you guys are actually reading the Kolletsky piece about this. Yeah. Yeah, we're um, going to do in that. In your reading yeah. group. yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that that's really important—that idea of the capital strike and the the way that capitalists um, they need to maintain control over their over the lever of investment. Uh, and so, um, proposals to try to change that, um, yeah, come come up against this real political impasse.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that much is is clear, and I think also, although we might kind of wish for some sort of keynesian measures at least as a as an alternative to what's been practiced up till now um i think you're right to point out exactly that that there's this uh sword of hanging over any government that tries to do that precisely because of because of the the, the threat of a capital strike so you might have a, a kind of a repeat of uh of, of like france in the 1980s really um one of the other solutions looks at it sorry, sorry
1: alex I, th- I thought you were gonna say a capital strike like a repeat of atlas shrugged Well, the capitalist Uh, uh. strike like that didn't actually happen. Well, but that's that's,
2: but that's uh, I think that's what you're suggesting, Aaron, that we're living through the world of the of the capitalist um, the capitalist strike, effectively, and um, but like that
4: emoji, it's like the shrug emoji, capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Talk about it. Might use that. Yeah.
2: The um, so the other thing was uh, that um, to ask the problem or another scenario with which there's a problem is the universal basic income, but from the right perspective, could you tell us why the um, kind of right wing or conservative visions of UBI are problematic?
4: Well, I mean, I, I sort of encourage people who are interested in UBI to hold their noses and really read the right wing proposals, because I think that um, in a lot of ways, the thing about the right wing proposals is that they're more realistic, right? I mean, they describe something that to me, I guess I'm afraid could kind of partially become a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a world in which um, the welfare state continues to decay and those kind of uh, state services are replaced with a cash handout that can't obviously replace um, the, what the state had done before. Uh, and they, they provide some measure of poverty relief but a very small one. So for example, like in Charles Murray's vision for basic income, uh, the level would remain pretty low and there would be, in his vision, a constitutional amendment preventing states from redistributing more income. So uh, poor people would receive this small amount of money. They would lose access to all kinds of um, state and social services. And the result of that, in his vision, is that many people are forced to leave the city, right? It's kind of view of or vision of The completion of the gentrification project so poor people are forced out of cities they're given these incomes that would only allow them to kind of subsist in rural areas Um, i mean it's like it's obviously a pretty catastrophic account of what would happen but it is an account of how societies could try to um sort of stabilize themselves in a low demand economy and how they could kind of um they could they could allow rich people to feel less ethical um, concern about what's happening, you know, um, that at least we've annihilated and, poverty and, in a and, certain definition. Yeah.
0: And maybe more security yeah. because they re- they think, well, you know, kind of the, the poor and now destitute, unemployed, are, are at least not totally destitute and are somehow taken care of. So they don't present a, an unruly mob that might threaten us.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't have to worry about like whether the jobs will ever come back because we've just given them this money and we're not going to take it away. Or at least or we could threaten to take it away if they if they complain too much.
1: But well, um, yeah, we've given them some money so they can go away, be quiet and, uh, you know, calm down a bit. Um, but Yeah, I guess the um, judging from your critique or, or what you were just saying there about the, the problems with what you might call right UBI, what about the left uh, UBI um problems with that because i think that might be probably for some of our listeners a bit more appealing um if it's more you know is, is, is it too simplistic to say it's more uh it's more generous but it's it's then too unrealistic what what's the problem with left ubi
4: yeah so i think that the the thing about the left ubi is that first of all and i i don't i don't like when sort of holier than thou theorists come and tell you like, no, 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 you know, you want better for the world, but actually that will um, be bad. I think we should, we should, um, it's true, I don't think it'll work, but it's, it's important to recognize that there's a really important, um, positive humanistic goal there. And especially in the United States, where so much welfare is like horrible means tested welfare, um, where they make it incredibly difficult for people to access any of it. Um, And where, of course, there an even universal healthcare, that the idea of a universal benefit really is an emancipatory idea. Right. Um, And the idea of the UBI from the left is that it will actually allow people to um, to have a life. Right. That they'll be able to live well. Um, The side effect of that, unfortunately, is that it's very expensive to produce that kind of UBI, not the liquidate the welfare state and give people a small payout, but like actually make them. Um, able to live uh, with the money. And, you know, there's a few ways of thinking about what the issue is with that. I think of the, the article that um, a lot of this is based on is an old article by Van Paris called The Capitalist Road to Communism. Uh, and it envisions this t- really incredible transitional program where more and more of the total income of society is distributed as a UBI. Uh, the problem with that vision, and I mean, it really gets at what we're talking about, and what's at stake in these discussions, is that for that vision to be possible, um, it really has to be the case that the automation story is right. Like, it has to be true that productivity is growing very quickly and that incomes are actually rising pretty quickly, but all of the income gains are going to the rich because automation is associated with the loss of jobs. And if that were true than a political project that could force income redistribution and shift that income growth from the very rich to the rest of us. Um, That's a really appealing story. And it's one that that suggests that the real problem society faces is a problem of distribution. And this is also James Ferguson's book about South Africa, Give a Man a Fish. It's about the new politics of distribution. if the problem with society, with the economy today, is not a distributional problem but a production problem, if the problem is a lack of investment um, that is uh, that originates in overproduction and global overcapacity, driving down growth rates and low low wage and low productivity, services can't fill in the gap that's uh, that, that's that's missing due to um, the running down of the industrial growth engine. If that's the case then this kind of project of redistribution is going to very quickly come up against some limits that you're going to have to really take away. It's going to have to be confiscatory um, in order to work. And then you end up back in a similar problem to the radical Keynesians because you're really advocating Mm. um, an attack on the rich who have their hands on the lever of of investment. Uh, And you're you're advocating something that would be um, system shaking but the project of UBI is to kind of say, that, like the radical Keynesians, we're not doing something something system shaking. We're yeah. doing something system compatible. Um, the full capacity, and that's the to, problem.
0: Yeah, no, just gonna say the full capacity to make a revolution, but then just holding back when uh, and settling for something much less. Like, why would yeah. you? Why would you do that?
4: Yeah, and I think part of the issue that that gets at is that you actually need an account of what the social transformation is that you're threatening to do. Um, and you have to be working very hard and in an organized way to fight to transform society in that radical way. Um, but then, like, why, if you're doing that, why would, you, why would you advocate a much lesser change in society? You know, we should just go full on for the, for the actual transformation. But we have to figure out what that is, and that's that's yeah, that's like the last part of the book is trying to use the automation theory, talk about what's wrong with their vision of a of a kind of post work world, um, to try to revive some some vision of what that radical change would look like.
0: Yeah. So I mean, coming to that last part, and well, I guess the penultimate part, because you you present a sort of uh, a short history of utopian thought in relation to this, and look at, I mean, I guess what comes through from that vision, I mean, is one, the the need for genuine or social movement, um, highly organized to be able to actually ha- have the degree of social power to change things, which I think is obvious for, or at least would be obvious to any listeners of this podcast. Um, but specifically in terms of the the, the vision and side of things, what comes across is that your vision contrast quite starkly to some of the, I guess, left-wing automation theorists who present a very high-tech vision where uh, technology will deliver us into this uh, golden future. And it's, as you, you know, you critique it for being a, a pretty technocratic vision because um, there's no social struggle actually leading there. It just comes to be implemented because the technology is there. Your vision, if I'm going to make one criticism, is that it comes across too much the opposite. It seems um, quite a non-technological vision and one in which they seems to be no future development um actually and then I wonder what where that that might be fine if you live in you know Sweden and you just kind of settle accounts now as it were on on history but that probably doesn't look so good if you're in mozambique so um do you buy that criticism i is is your vision kind of fairly low tech and and certainly a no growth vision
4: well I think it's low no it's not those things it's definitely has to probably be low growth globally i think there you're really you you you're entering into a different kind of discussion about climate change and what the how we're going to um slow stop or reverse the climate change process right but uh in general no the vision is not low tech um it should be really high tech the idea is to say that it's a social problem, first and foremost. It's not a technological problem. It's a problem of thinking about how we're going to organize society and how we're going to organize the work that we have to do. And technology will deliver us from those problems and solve social questions of social organization for us. Um, those, are, those are social questions all the way down. Um, and actually, I have a piece that, uh, that it's gonna, that's going to come out soon in Logic Magazine. Um, which is where a lot of these ideas have led me, which is towards trying to think about the social calculation debate and digital technologies and kind of making a similar argument there as well, that digital technologies are going to be totally important to how we organize society, um, in a world where capitalists don't control the lever of investment, um, we have to think about how digital technology is going to play a role in that world. But it's first and foremost a question of social transformation, like reorganizing mm. social life. Um, and then high tech has to fit into that story. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, it it does. It does. Absolutely. I mean, again, I, I think it we're always, I guess, at the end of the day, confronted with the problem that... Uh, you know, kind of you and whose army, right? So you can paint all the visions you like, but we're faced with uh, the very real problem that deindustrialization has wrecked the, uh, the degree of working class organization that there used to be. And so without that, it's very hard to envisage how one might realize any sort of utopian vision whatsoever. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, then it, then you end up in these debates about whether, you know, organization will happen around uh, the point of production around labor or whether it'll be something else, whether it be social movements based around just citizens or, you know, human beings banding together um, around on some basis. Um, but that for me is a lot less clear what that might look like.
4: Yeah, I guess that for me now, I mean, maybe this is my optimistic turn. And so I can be criticized for it. But I guess that I think like, you know, I'm not I'm not a huge Kautsky fan, but I. I do read, read the man. And I think like, there's a description of early about how the second international came about. um, Where Kautsky says, look, you know, there were these socialists, like there were these utopian dreamers. And then there was the working, working class movement. And this, this kind of movement didn't really kind of coalesce or crystallize until the, until the vision of the socialists and the kind of, everyday struggles of the working class movement came together, this kind of fusion, right, that generated the socialist movement. And that resulted in a very rapid um, pace of organization, like working class organization happening through socialist organization um, in the 1880s and 1890s. And I guess that my attempt to have a more positive account is that or, I guess one, <laughs> the negative is say we don't even have a vision. Like, we don't even really have many utopians explaining what it is that the world is going to look like. Um, we do and now have tumultuous social movements that I think are having trouble finding a crystallization and organization. Um, but I think one thing that we can start to talk about is what that vision of the world would look like and to recognize that many of the visions we've had um, that have come out of. Uh, the kind of period of Stalinization, breakneck industrialization, all of the debates around Maoism, and all of these kind of visions that were ultimately visions grounded in um, how to take hold and master the process of industrialization. Um, we have to kind of come up with a new vision that's adequate to a deindustrializing society, a digital digital world, um, and try to think about what our vision is
0: very good uh thank you so much aaron uh the book for listeners once again is automation and the future of work which looks coming out on uh from verso books uh next month and again i'd urge listeners to pick up the copy it's very short it's very brisk uh, and it's full of uh, good stuff so definitely definitely buy a copy uh, aaron thanks again And for listeners, join us at the end of the month for a reading club in which we'll reevaluate evaluate Michal The Political Consequences of Full Employment, which uh, Aaron just referenced there, a very important bit of work that uh, merits reassessment in today's times. If you're interested in that, sign up at patreon.com slash uh, Reading clubs are for patrons $10 and up, um, but regular $5 patrons get access to around two original episodes a month. Uh, in those, we tend to discuss current affairs, we respond to readers' criticisms, uh, and also have the occasional regular guest. So just to give a shout out to what's coming up next month on Patreon, we've got David Broder talking about the limitations of anti-fascism and why this is not a Weimar moment. Uh, plus more from our interview with Benjamin Moser, which came out last week. So all that to look forward to, Uh, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.